0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At Hope everyone's morning has started off well. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open them up to Galatians chapter 5. That's the passage we're going to be in today. We are currently in a series uh, called Misconceptions, and we, uh, we typically do kind of topical series during the months of June and July. One, because we have a lot of travel that's going on, um, primarily a lot of weddings that are going on, and so we always have a lot of people that are in and out, and so we, we take a break from our book studies that we're going through, essentially. We've been in the book of Acts since February 2018, and so we like to really dig into the book as we go through it. Um, So we're taking a break from Acts during these couple of months uh, right now just to kind of look at some topics um, that we, in conversations with our people, have found some misconceptions with these topics, um, whether that's something that we just kind of misunderstood or it's a way that we've kind of been taught in the past, or oftentimes we just want more clarity on why we do the things we do, or why we teach the way we teach, or why we even practice certain things that we practice. Um, And so a lot of our topics really kind of started out with just, what is the gospel? Um, That was essentially the the first week of looking at that, primarily because we're really diving into a a culture um, at large that is kind of becoming more post-Christian, Um, So, there used to be a generation that knew the gospel, and then the next generation assumed the gospel, and now we're entering into a generation that don't know the gospel at all because it's not really been passed down, it's not really been taught. Um, and so now the gospel is, is much less about what orthodox Christianity has taught, and it's much more about kind of uh, relativism, what, what should I think it should be, or what should I feel it should be. And so we just want to provide more biblical insight into what it is that we believe and what it is that we teach and what it is that we practice. And so this is kind of how that series has unfolded. And so we're looking at about 12 topics um, over the the months of June and July and into August as we kick back off um, Acts in August. Um, But the series topics really have all focused around, again, like I said, the gospel. Uh, We've looked at money and generosity and what does our culture uh, respond to that uh, today we're looking at this topic of liturgy and so if we if we have a liturgy of service uh, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying an order of service uh, how many songs do we sing uh, when do we have announcements when do we pray when do we read from the scriptures when do we preach Um, How do we do those things in a way that is both biblical but also training us on how we are to live our lives on a daily basis? Um, Because if you're you're not familiar, we actually are very intentional with what we do in our order of service so that it disciples our people to be able to live that out in an orderly way every single day of their lives. And so, for example, we have four parts within our service. We begin with an exaltation which is just simply, we want to praise God, we want to lift God up, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We want to lift him up and give praise and honor to him. We want our services to be centered around praise and worship of him and him alone, rather than ourselves. So then it moves into confession, which is actually primarily the part we're going to be looking at today in the sermon, is within our liturgy, why do we practice confession? Why do we practice corporate confession? Why do we continue to confess sins if, as believers, we are forgiven past, present, and future? Why do we still do that? And so there's a lot of misconceptions around confession. But what we typically see, and as I'll dive into this, is when you see God and you're praising and honoring God and you're seeing him in his holiness, you're seeing him in his perfection, you're going to begin to see the flaws within your own life. And so naturally, when we come into the presence of God and we want to honor Him and glorify Him, we begin to see our faults, our failures, and there's going to be this battle within yourself to basically be... I don't know if I can come into his presence to worship him because I'm now dealing with these imperfections and falls that I'm feeling and that I'm thinking about and I'm, I'm kind of examining my life over this last week or even over this morning. And I don't know that I can come in and give praise and honor to a holy God when I don't feel it myself, when I don't think of myself as someone worthy to be able to do that. And so we want to talk about what confession does for the believer that brings us into the invitation of the presence of God because he's invited us there. And how that is actually a safe place that liberates us rather than condemns us in that moment. And then what we see moving out of confession, once we come and bring our sins to the table, God proclaims over us. It's a proclamation. We want to hear from the Word of God what he is teaching about the gospel message about what Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection has purchased for us that brings us into not only the, the justification, not only the legal parameters that we are declared righteous because of Jesus, but also that we are then brought into the family of God as he adopts us as sons and daughters that he lovingly and delights in to bring into his family, that he wants to spend time with, that he wants to be in the presence of. And so that is the proclamation then that we usually do over the, the sermon as well as over our liturgy when it comes to exaltation, when it comes to confession. we have, we have our, our worship leaders will speak exhortations over you. They will speak teachings over you that are biblical, that are prayerful, that are encouraging, that God has in the person of Jesus Christ declared you righteous and that as we come and confess our sins, He is forgiving us because He's faithful and just to do that in order to liberate us from those things that are still entangling us, so that in freedom, we can worship Him, give Him honor and glory. And in that, we're receiving joy, we're receiving peace, we're receiving comfort in that place. And then we finish off our services with kind of a benediction response, or a lot of times a commission so it's now that we have sung the gospel in honor to God, we've confessed the gospel with our sins, we've then proclaimed the gospel over our people, how do we then take that gospel message, respond to it by then being commissioned out into the world and applying it not only to our lives individually, but also to the lives of those around us as we go on mission with the gospel message. And so those are kind of the four elements that we look at within our services. And we, even, we pray through the songs that we sing, that they are within the element of those. And so typically the first song is the exaltation song. The second song is a confessional song. The third song is a proclamation song. The fourth song that's following the sermon is typically a response song. And so we're, we're thinking through everything that we do within the service to make sure that we are discipling, that we are training our people to understand this. And so that's what a liturgy is. It's just simply a rule of life. So we have a rule of life for our church but at the same time, we want that rule of life to begin to, to kind of play itself out in your rule of life on how you live your life on a daily basis. So that again, God, God is ultimately honored. Jesus is magnified. The Holy Spirit's working within our lives to transform us to be more like Jesus. And at the same time, in that, we are, we are being freed and liberated from those sins that we're still wrestling with on a day-and-day day basis. And then liberated to be able to honor Him, glorify Him, and worship Him in all things, So there, there essentially, there's nothing more important in life than worship. We are all worshiping something or someone. The only question is whether we will worship the right one in the right way. And at TDC, we, we want all of life to be worshiped to God. We want all of life. We want the way that you manage and steward your resources, your money, your finances, your time, your energy your homes, your cars. We want all of those things to reflect a lifestyle that's honoring and worshipful of God, that is uh, showing generosity to others around you. Just as God has been generous to us, we want you to be generous to others. We want our lives to, to manifest this way, the way that you work. We want your work to be Um, honoring and glorifying to God that you're doing it to the best of your abilities, that you're doing it in the way that God's designed you to work and flourish, that you're cultivating society around you to make it better than what it was before. Sort of what what God did with Eden in perfecting it. He had given the, the command and cultural mandate to Adam and Eve to go and cultivate all of society outside of Eden to reflect it. He gave them a model and example and said, go and do this. Go and be fruitful and multiply, cultivating everything that's around you. We want our people to be able to do the exact same thing, so we take vocation seriously. It's not just a means to be able to pay your bills, but it's a way in which you're cultivating society to reflect the image of God, the Imago Dei, that it's honoring Him, that it's glorifying Him. And that's from anybody and everybody from, um, like typically people think, well, the, the People on staff at a church are the ones who are the ones that are, that are cultivating the kingdom of God, that are doing the work. No, the true work of ministry is in every single position that is within society. Everybody who has a job is cultivating society. And so we honor those things and we want to lift those things up. we want to train our people to be able to do that because he's worthy to receive glory and honor and power. In particular, we want our worship services on Sundays to be pleasing to Him. And so I mentioned the four buckets, but within that, there's elements, there's values that we have for why we worship the way we do. One is we want glory to God. Worship's ultimately for Him. He's the most important audience at every service. Yes, we think through what songs are going to be relatable to the context of our people and our culture and our geography where we're we're not here in this service, singing songs in Spanish? Because I don't think any of you speak Spanish, right? So we're singing songs in English. But we're, we're going to culturally relate what we're doing to who we are and who's in our service. But at the same time, we want to make sure that it's not just about us and our preferences, but that everything we do is honoring to God and that He is the audience that, that we are actually serving with our worship rather than ourselves. And so that's why a lot of times I say, even in our song selections, if I liked three out of the four songs, it probably wasn't a good service because I feel like it's, it's generating around my preferences rather than the collective. And so if I like one or two of the four songs, then we're probably getting where we should be because we're diversifying our preferences. The second thing is edifying to God's people. Corporate worship must build up the body of Christ. Believers should be equipped, comforted, and exhorted. We want this to be a place where as we are honoring and worshiping God with what we do, you are being encouraged and exhorted in that without it being about you. It's a fine line between those two things. We want you to feel comfort, but we don't want you to feel comfort just because we provide great coffee from indie Coffee Roasters or because sometimes the air conditioner is turned on better in here. Because today it's not. but Or that we finally dim the lights where this whole place used to just feel like a morgue inside this. Like there, there's, there's different things that we do to try to provide comfort. But it's building an atmosphere that's allowing you to feel the freedom to worship and honor God. So we kind of like to use the language of undistracted excellence. We want there to be undistracted excellence. We are wanting to do things to the best of our abilities because we want to honor and glorify God for who he is. We want there to be a reverence of coming into this place and seeing God for who he is. But at the same time, we don't want it to draw our attention to ourselves or to our facility. We want it to be pushing and drawing attention to him and him alone. The third is it needs to be understandable. And this one's, for me, more than anything. Um, New words and concepts may be introduced, but the service should be intelligible to both Christians and non-Christians. Not only do we not use big theological words like penal substitutionary atonement or hypostatic union. like We're not diving into those types of words in order to then have to give you the explanation of those. We're just going to tell you what they are. We're just going to explain them in an 8th grade type reading level. So, not to say that you're all at an eighth grade reading level, but we want it to be intelligible, we want it to be understandable for everybody. At the same time, that means that because I do come from a rural Tennessee background, there are times that I make up or couldn't, like, I, 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 I was about to say conjoin. There, there's times where you bring words together and make up new ones. Like, I think there was the one time, I don't think it was here, I said we should be unified. Um, And I thought that was a great word. I thought it was a legit word. Um, But apparently after the church then made t-shirts that had Unified written on them, I I realized it wasn't. Um, But anyways, it needs to be understandable. Number four, it needs to be biblical. The whole service teaches God's people so everything, the prayer, the songs, the preaching, must be biblical. I like to say in worship, we read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, and we see the Bible in the sacraments. We see the Bible in when we take communion and we see the illustration of what it's ultimately communicating. Number five, we emphasize the ordinary means of grace. God can work in many ways, but he's he's committed to being with us and transforming us through certain means of grace. He communes with us through prayer, through the word, through the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. These are ways that he has, through scripture, provided to us means of grace that when we come together and we pray together and we commune together and we sing together, the Lord is emphasizing and and bringing in his presence among us as a corporate body. Number six is expositional preaching. The central act in the worship service is the preaching of God's word. We want to get the Bible into you. That's why I say we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we preach the Bible. We talk about the Bible because the Bible, we know, is going to be the only thing communicated by God to us that's going to ultimately edify, encourage, transform us. And so it's not going to be us coming in and being like, hey, I've got some ideas, some things I saw this week. Just want to run those by you and let's see what the Lord does if I were to ever come in here and do that just get up and walk out and go to several other churches that I can tell you right now that you could go to and be way more edified and encouraged because they're going to open up the scriptures number seven thoughtful every church has a liturgy which is just an order of service and it has as I talked about the four parts Historical, the church has been thinking about how to worship for centuries. We want to learn from our spiritual ancestors and build on their models. To that end, we regularly employ creeds. You might not know that we're employing creeds, but we're doing creeds in certain prayers that we do, in certain liturgies that Josh writes out for us. We want to employ those things because we come from a line, a rich line history of men and women who have gathered together as the church who have siphoned through the scriptures and who have seen the doctrines of Christ the doctrines of worship the doctrines of doxology the doctrines of of just who God is and have put together in understandable ways here's what we can believe about him here's the goodness that comes from him And so we want to not reinvent the wheel, but at the same time build upon these historical creeds and confessions and catechisms that serve us. It's like testimonies passed down from generations after generations after generations. Letting us know this is who God is and how good he is. How magnificent Christ is. Number nine, we like to mix old and new. We believe there are new songs to be sung to Jesus. We also believe there is a great heritage of church music that we should embrace. You'll find that our services use music from different genres as well as different um, centuries. It can be fast, loud, slow, or soft. We pray through those things. We think through those things. We want them to be, again, God-honoring, God-exalting, Christ-magnifying and a lot of times, to be honest with you, current contemporary Christian music misses the mark sometimes when it comes to writing rich theological songs that magnify the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we love hymns because a lot of hymns were written by theologians, not guys just sitting around. And I'm not going to knock on like um, kind of the the modern day worship leader, but since I'm not one, I guess I can. Um, but like we're, we're not just walking around, sitting around in coffee shops and just feeling like, you know, what, what, what am I feeling in the moment right now? And let's just throw something down. Oh, that's a good lick. Let's roll with that. No, it's like guys who have gone and like locked themselves away with the scriptures. And as they're reading through the scriptures, they're saying, man, what do we as the body of Christ need to sing unto God? that is going to honor and glorify Him and that's going to feed our souls. What do we need to corporately, collectively get together and say, God, you are good. Great is thy faithfulness. They're rich. Number 10, prayerful. Our services include many different prayers. Often you will find a prayer of confession because we sin every week and need gospel mercy every week. We usually do that right before the sermon because, as I mentioned, usually there's exaltation, confession, proclamation, and then response. But today we did not do that because I knew I was going to then be teaching on confession. As when we look at a liturgy of service, rarely do we ever have anyone come to us and be like, Why do we pray during church? Why do we sing songs during church? Why do we preach during church? Why? Why do we respond during church? Why do we do communion? Why do we do uh, believer's baptism? Why do we do those things? I don't get those questions. The questions that we've gotten since we've started the district church over two years ago is simply, why do we do confession? Why do we confess? We're not Catholic. Why do we do confession? And so because that is the one that is typically asked, I want us to answer a couple of these questions Why do we confess our sins corporately? If my past, present, and future sins have been forgiven when I was saved, why do I still need to confess sins individually and corporately? And just to preface before we open this up, I know confession can feel heavy often. I know it can feel lamenting, it can feel frustrating. It can feel burdensome. I understand that. Because, Lord willing, I hope I confess every single day. And usually confession is is brought out of this holy conviction of just this sorrowful spirit of, Lord, I have sinned against you. It's heavy. But there's a practical understanding of our relationship with God that if we don't get it right... We will never come in confession to the Lord. Rather, we will stay within our sorrowful conviction. And we will never run to Him because we don't understand rightly our relationship to Him. To where confession then actually leads into liberation and freedom. That's the ultimate goal of confession is liberation and freedom. And so if we don't understand the relationship with God rightly, we will never get there. And we will only ever feel confession as being this heavy burden, this heavy um, discipline, this heavy spiritual spanking. I don't know how you want to word it, but this is what it's going to feel like. And so I want us to try to shift our mindset on that. Not to take away the sorrowful conviction, because I believe it needs to be there. Sin is severe, it's serious, and we need to take it seriously because we're, we're robbing God of glory at the same time robbing ourselves of joy, and God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, as John Piper says. And so we, we want to be able to come into His presence to give Him glory and to receive satisfaction. And if confession, us dealing with our sins, is keeping us from that relationship, then we need to rightly understand what the practice of confession is so that it frees us to move into this relationship and experience what God ultimately wants us to experience. And so I want to first start with this illustration to paint this picture that'll help us jump into the scriptures here. Picture a marriage, picture a wedding. You've got two couples coming together, two people, not two couples. It's a weird wedding. You've got two people coming together to get married, and they come up and they say their vows, and they say, I do, and they say, I love you. Does that mean you will never say it again? Does that mean you will never say, I love you again? Now let's move into the marriage. How many of you have never said, I'm sorry, in your marriage? Because what we recited at the wedding is in sickness and in health, and for better or for worse. We're essentially saying there's going to be the better where, where you see that I'm loving you, I'm pursuing you, I'm all for you, I'm I'm excited about you, I'm I'm doing nice things for you, I'm I'm I'm, I'm nailing it. And then but for worse, there's also gonna be times where I'm not. And so there's the, there's the portion of it where I'm saying I'm for you, I love you, and then there's also the worst where it's, I'm going to be saying I'm sorry and, and I've messed up and I've not done it well, I've not pursued you. We, we essentially communicate that at the wedding day. So does that mean for the rest of our marriage we're not going to say I love you and we're not going to say I'm sorry? After all, you're, you're married. So death do us part. You're married. We're in this forever. We're going to be in relationship. But there's still an ongoing, every single day, communication, a confession to one another that I love you and I'm sorry. Because if there's anyone in this room right now who would answer that, that I, I, I don't have to say I'm sorry or I've never said I'm sorry... You are completely ignorant and in denial. And right now, your spouse is, is completely displeased with you. It's just true. If you've never said, I'm sorry, or you don't continue to say, I'm sorry, you need to say, I'm sorry right now. I give you permission to walk out of here and deal with it. So if the practice of saying, I'm sorry, is important and fundamental in a human relationship, how much more is it important and fundamental in our relationship with God. And when it comes to our relationship with God, it's true that there is nothing you can do to make him love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. However, and y'all have heard me say that, however, we can misconstrue that phrase to say, I can do anything then, and God will love me. I can do anything, and God will like me. Because you've heard me say over the last several weeks that God delights in you. Ask the question, does God love you? Yes. Does God like you? The majority of you said no. We have this fundamental human nature to believe, yes, God loves us because we've been taught that. We know John three sixteen; It's on a coffee cup in our house. Like We, we know that language that God loves us. And in the person and work of Jesus Christ, He sent Him to die for us, so that we would be forgiven of our sins, but this idea that God is my friend, that God loves me, that he, deli- that he likes me, that He delights in me, that He wants to hang out with me, that He wants to spend time with me, that He wants to pick me up and twirl me around and hang out. No, 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 no. no. That's not from... God's not there with me yet. We struggle with that. We struggle with that because of this issue. This confessional issue. But the reality is is it is possible for us to displease God who is fully pleased with us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Just as I've taught, at the baptism of Jesus Christ, you have the Trinity laid out. You have the Father speaking out of heaven. You have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove onto the person of Jesus Christ. And you have the Father speaking to Jesus, this is my Son in whom I'm well, what? Pleased. Therefore, if Jesus comes to live within us, as Romans 8 says, if Christ dwells within you, then the Father is looking down on you and saying, this is my Son, this is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased because your identity becomes the identity of Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our identity shifts so that Christ is living in me, Christ is living through me. This life that I am living is all about Jesus. If it's all about Jesus, as God looks at me, he sees Jesus and he's pleased. He is pleased, but does not mean that he can be, can't be displeased. And that's what we want to look at today. How do we respond when we displease God? Galatians 5, you're there. Galatians 5, verse 16. We're going to read this. And I'm going to read a big chunk. So we're actually going to go through chapter 6, verse 5. Verse 16 through chapter 6, verse 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now I want to pause here for just a second. Because a lot of times people will look at this passage and see it in the, the lens of, okay, we're referring to non-believers who, and we're referring to believers. We're referring to non-believers are those who walk in the flesh and believers are the ones who walk in the Spirit. And so if you're going to walk in the flesh, you're contrary to God, you're not in under God's love, you're, you're outside of His will, you are a sinner. Those who are walking by the Spirit are saints, loving God, serving God, trusting God. X, Y, and Z. Here, he kind of flips it a little bit and says something very interesting. At the end of verse 17, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Want to do is identity language. Want to do is affections and desires. Only a regenerated, spiritually alive In Christ, believer, someone who has understood the gospel, would have a desire and an affection to want to do the will of God, to want to walk in step with the Spirit, to want to love and serve Jesus Christ with all of their soul, all of their being, all of their life. So we're not looking at non-believers here. We're looking at, rather, a relational Tension that we are having within our own selves that's dealing with the flesh as well as this new identity which is the spirit of Christ within us. Because if you haven't checked, you are not glorified yet. Right? I mean, how many of you walked in here today with something hurting? All right. Thank you. Like I'm still recovering from a softball game on Thursday last week. Like it's like, the, the week before still. Like it's, there, we, we are still broken down hooptie bodies and we are not glorified. We are still dealing with sin, both circumstantial around us as well as sin within our flesh that we have not yet dealt with when God glorifies us and he gives us a new body one that will not sin. Verse 18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. So here's what's going to be warring with you. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, And in case he missed any, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is identity of Christ here. This is what you want to do. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Remember Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, if Galatians 2.20 is true, that the life of Christ is now living in me, if we live by that Spirit, we also then are to keep in step with the spirit we are to respond by the identity that was it that's within us to an application of life that is walking in step that is responding to i want to say no to the sin and i want to say yes to this i want to say yes to jesus i want to say yes to god's design i want to say yes to his holiness i want to say yes to those things rather than these things over here that are of the flesh Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Keep in step with the Spirit. Also, don't sin is essentially what he's saying. So there's this war that can happen. We can, through the strength of Christ, ability of Christ, identity of Christ, walk in step with the Spirit. Through the strength and ability of our flesh, we can not walk in step with the Spirit. This is the tension that we're going to feel every single day of why you still war with yourself and say, why do I keep doing the thing I don't want to do? Why can't I just do the thing that I want to do? Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now we're bringing confession into the peace. We're looking at our body, we're looking at our church, we're looking at our brothers and sisters who are in Christ. And if collectively we see sin in each other's lives, with gentleness we are to come to them, offering an invitation of, "Hey, I see something that's going on here. I see something that's off. It's an opportunity to confess." You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Also, keep watch on yourself, lest you too may be tempted. So it's not just like we have spiritual police within our church who's walking around, starting to look for every single person's sin. Like, we're not doing that. He's saying keep watch on yourself. Every single one of us are susceptible to temptation to be able to sin and get out of step with the Spirit. To get out of step with Christ. We're guarding each other in order that we would lead and point each other to Jesus so that we would honor and glorify him with our lives and in that receive the greatest joy and satisfaction. For us to say that we are for one another, which is the second part of our vision, for us to say we are for one another, is to mean that we know you so well that we can tell when you are out of step with the Spirit. That when you are trusting in your flesh rather than the identity of Christ who is within you. To be for one another is to know and be known by one another. And to, in gentleness, call each other out when we're walking out of step with the Spirit. So that, verse 2 says, we can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, the mission of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. Think about what you're doing in your life. How am I talking? How am I responding in conflict? How am I working? How am I stewarding resources? How am I doing these things? Test each one's own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. We're accountable for our life, we're accountable for what we do and what we don't do sins of omission and sins of commission. I want you to see what this does to the Spirit of God when we walk out of step with the Spirit. And this one is going to feel heavy, but there's liberation on the end of it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says this. Remember, he's writing to a church. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. you know what grieve means? To, to make someone be so sorrowful for your motives, actions, thoughts. You've produced sorrow in another person because of your own thoughts actions, deeds, words, motives. This is relational grieving to the Spirit of God when we walk out of step with Him. This is, in your marriage, that season when you are just butting heads and you can't agree on something and you're not in communication with one another and it's just building and it's just building and there's this deep frustration that you have with one another. What brings you out of that season? Because the beauty of God is as he says here, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander I mean what are the things that you typically think of when you're in those seasons with whether it's your spouse or your children or a coworker or a family member or a friend who has just stabbed a knife right in your back like wh- these are the things you feel you feel bitterness you feel wrath you feel anger you feel clamor you feel slander you feel those things let those be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I love that as he's teaching the church to not grieve the Holy Spirit, he lets them in on what grieving the Holy Spirit does in producing sorrow, but then reminds you that there's forgiveness. That there's forgiveness in God in Christ Jesus. That He doesn't just let you just sit in the sorrow, in the relational separation, but He invites you in to remember the gospel, to remember the gospel, to remember the vows at our own salvation that as he is bringing us into the marriage of the church and Jesus, that's really what salvation is—is is a relational marriage of us to Christ that will be forever. That Jesus to us is saying, "I do, I love you for better or worse. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I've paid your penalty." Like when you talk about a marriage and a relationship. Because a lot of times, I can hear it right now, even in some of your thoughts of like, yeah, well, when me and my spouse are in a, in a conflict, you don't know the crazy that's coming out of so-and-so over here. Like, I can hear you saying that, because I've thought it in my mind. I, is Kelsey in here? Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> I was thinking she was upstairs, but <laughs> anyways, babe, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you can hear the beauty that's in the other person. But at the same time, there are times where you're like, I'm right, they're wrong. When it comes to our relationship between Christ and the church, groom and bride, who's the crazy in the relationship? Who's the one that's always wrong? Us. But yet Jesus, in his perfection, in his person, in his motive, in his character, in his godness, his deity, is always perfectly in pursuit i love you i died for you that crazy you just did i died for that i paid that penalty already i'm after you i'm coming for you there's nothing you can do to separate me there's nothing you can do to make me love you less this is romans 8 at the end of the chapter language There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. So, this confession that we have, this sorrowful producing spirit that we are giving to God when we sin and walk out of step, He is proclaiming over us, reminding us remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember the work that I did that you did not do that I did in order to first and foremost bring you into relationship with me. I saved you and forgave you at your worst. I married you at your worst. So do you think now just because you're grieving me just because you're displeasing me that I'm not still inviting you in? That I'm not asking that i'm not commanding in a loving way for you to come to me with these sins that are grieving me to confess them because what he says in first john chapter five he says this this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that god is light and in him is no darkness at all if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's saying there's light and there's darkness. There's black and white here when it comes to our relationship with God. He's light. And if we're walking in darkness, we cannot walk in the light. But what he's ultimately saying here is you are in the light because you are in me. And if you are in me, however yet, you still say I have no sin. You're deceiving yourself. There's still things to be worked on in you. There's still transformation that needs to happen where you're becoming more like Christ and less like sinner Dwayne. So that he can say in verse 9 that if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just. Faithful and just. Faithful, he will do it. Just, he's not sweeping it under the rug. He's just in the sense that he has paid the penalty for the sin that he's about to forgive. This is not just a, don't worry about it, it's okay. Just come on back into the family. No, no, no. He's looking at you and saying, when you come to me and you confess your sins, I'm faithful, I will do this. I'm just, I have paid this penalty on your behalf. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. To cleanse us. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I don't want you to sin, but if you do sin, we have Jesus. Come to me and confess those sins so that he can be faithful and just to continue to forgive those sins and liberate you from that sorrowful conviction that you have. That is good. It's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to wholly convict us of when we are out of step with him because we're robbing God of glory and we're robbing ourselves of joy and satisfaction. He's for you when he convicts you. And so we come together in the practice of confession both individually, we want you to do it every single day. We want you to confess your sins every single day because we don't want there to be any grieving relationship between you and the Spirit of God. And we come and do it corporately because we know we're broken as a church. TDC does not do it perfect. Our liturgy is not perfect. We want to continue refining and reforming every single thing that we do so that we are honoring God and being liberated from our own sins. So we come willingly to confess so that we would be freed. Freed from those things. Think about it in relationship. Jesus is our bridegroom. We're married to him. He loves us. Yes, we can displease him through sin, walking out a step of the spirit. But that displeasure never outweighs his unconditional love towards us because he's already paid the penalty for us. He's already forgiven that sin. So when we're out of step, we come in confession. We come as a bride saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've wronged you. I'm sorry that I've sinned against you. I'm sorry that I've got out of step. I want to I celebrate and, and be on good terms again. I want to go on another honeymoon. I want to continue to enjoy life and life to the full every single day as you promise in John 10. I want that relationship with you. I don't want to grieve you. Does Jesus love me? Absolutely. Does he like me? Yes. Yes. Jesus is our bridegroom. God is our father. Think about that in your relationship with your parents. You know you love them, but did they always like you? I know we have some parents in the room. You can say no, it's okay. I mean, I can tell you, I've got the three-year-old and the 18-month-old that I don't always like. Did not like them at bedtime last night. It was very grieving of my spirit, (laughs) of what they were doing. And I lovingly disciplined to make the relationship right. To see once after two hours they finally fell asleep. To see two beautiful children resting because they're safe. We want to rest in our relationship with our Father. Confession brings us into that rest. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Does the Holy Spirit love me? Absolutely the Holy Spirit loves me. Does he delight in me? Absolutely he delights in me. Do we grieve him when we walk out of step? Yes. But who's the first one to come into our life to rebuke and to correct and to tell us you're out of step with me? Holy Spirit does that. Why? Why? Because he wants to delight in us and he wants to love us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to point us to Jesus. He wants to show us the love of the Father. He wants us to experience him. This is why we confess. We confess because we're reminding ourselves that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why we confess. So we want to enter into a time right now of confession. And as we enter into this time of confession, we're going to do it individually, even though we're here corporately. I want you to literally just, I'm mean, i going to go Southern Baptist here. I want you to like close your head, like close your head. I want you to, it's been a while. I want you to like bow your head and close your eyes. I want you to just think about your relationship with Jesus right now. For some of you, that might be a heavy thing to do. You might have the thoughts running through your head right now. I've I've sinned against you, Lord. I've gone out of step with the Spirit. I've messed up. I've not honored you. I have motives in my heart right now that are bitterness towards other people. I want to get revenge on other people. I want other people to hurt. I've got flaws right now within my marriage where I think she did something wrong or I think he did something wrong and I'm harboring this bitterness. I've got issues with my work where I can't stand my boss and I am not doing a good job because at the same time, I want them to suffer from it as well. Lord, I have this feeling within me that I am out of step. So right now, I want you to think about that. I want you to just meditate on that for a few moments. And I really want us to sit in this for a moment. Because I want you to feel that sorrow, that holy conviction from the Spirit that's saying, yeah, you're right, it's, this has been displeasing. Let's sit in that for a moment right now. Lord, we come to you right now and we apologize for the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the clamor and the slander the malice the the things that are within us that are unholy the things that are within us that are not in step with your spirit God, we want to come and confess those things to you right now Lord, we're sorry. We know, Lord, that you are faithful and just. That you are quick to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, would you give us right now the assurance within our spirits that you are doing that. Lift us right now of that burden and that weight of our sin. And let us feel the liberation and the freedom to know that you love us and that you delight in us. That you care for us. That you are pleased with us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Confession leads to a clean conscience. It leads to relief from conviction and it leads to rest in God's love. Thank you, God, for cleansing us and relieving us and providing rest for us so that we may trust you as we walk in step with your spirit. Give us the strength, give us the knowledge, give us the wisdom to make decisions on a daily basis that are in step with your spirit, that honor and glorify you, and that lead us into joy and satisfaction. Thank you, Lord, for this time of confession. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. The reason why we are able to confess as a church corporately is because he is faithful and just. And the only reason why God is able to be faithful and just towards us in forgiving us is because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That because of our sins and the wages of our sins being death, death had to be paid. We would never be able to come and say, I'm sorry to you, Lord, if death was not paid. And so we celebrate communion as an act of worship, remembering the breaking of Jesus' body and the shedding of his blood for the removal of our sins, the forgiving of our sins. So we come to this now with a spirit lifted that we do not have to come to it in condemnation, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We come to this table celebrating and worship. Thank you, Jesus for breaking your body, for dying on a cross, shedding your blood, paying my penalty, my debt in full, so that I can be united with Jesus in holy matrimony and be adopted by the Father and brought home to enjoy all of his splendor. That's what we worship in communion because that's what God has done for us. For Him to receive all glory. So let's stand now and we will go to the back of the room and partake of communion together as a church. Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info@thedistrictchurch.